Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Poverty was the norm for most of human history. Then, starting in Britain in the 18th century, economic growth took off. So what happened? Economists have theories about the origins of the Industrial Revolution, from geography to culture to institutions. In a new book, economists Mark Koyama and Jared Rubin assemble the literature to give readers a big-picture view of how the world went from poverty to widespread prosperity. Mark is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, and Jared is a professor of economics at Chapman University. They are the authors of How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. Mark, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Why did the world or the most advanced parts of the world get richer a lot earlier? Why, why did we not see an acceleration, industrial revolution, an expansion in, in ancient Greece or ancient Rome or China? Because certainly there were bits in all those places where you could see how like something could have happened. So why, so why did it take until 1750, 1800 in Great Britain for it to happen? Yeah, let, let me have a go at answering that one. So as you said, there are definitely episodes of economic growth, uh, growth effervescences to use um, uh, Jack Goldstone's term earlier. So, you know, to say classical Greece, um, there's evidence that houses were getting larger, trade was expanding, you get urbanization, things like Athens. Um, so what's missing? I think there are two, um, two sides of this. One is an argument which would emphasize rent-seeking and war and political instability and conflict. So, so, so a rich city-state like Athens attracts external predators, gets involved in costly wars, and and this, this, this kind of trading commercial-based society is relatively fragile. And I think you see something similar in Renaissance Italy, where cities like Florence are very flourishing, but they get um, kind of tied down and eaten up in, in wars with their neighbors and then eventually conquered by, by French and Spanish armies. It, the other thing partly missing, or to some degree missing, is innovation, and particularly the marriage between science and technology. And then again, taking, taking that technology or taking innovation to the marketplace. So there definitely are examples of um, scientific breakthroughs, Archimedes, uh, you know, and so on in the ancient world. And there's definitely some kind of technological ingenuity, but what might be missing is the application of that to the market in a, in a, in a general sense. There's sporadic examples, but there's not a, a stream of successive um, innovations which are improving how we're producing stuff, improving the production process in the ancient world. Or if there are, they're narrow, they're confined to a few sectors like construction. Um, so why is that missing? Uh, that's kind of a big puzzle, which we, we, we get to later in the book when we think about what, what came together in England in the 17th and 18th century to make possible not just a commercial economy, not just a thriving urbanizing economy, but a successive um, series of innovations which were applied to you know relatively broad sectors of the economy and didn't peter out. Yeah, I think about something uh, something called the Antikythera mechanism, 
Yeah. Which is like this astronomical calculator uh, that they pulled out of the sea. Uh, they think it was about 2,000 years old. And it, 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 you know, could calculate solar eclipses, the Olympics, and then it kind of like disappeared. And it was way ahead of anything. And they, we couldn't sort of duplicate that thing for you know, a, a thousand years. And it was one scientific historian said, any, any society that could make that thing, there's like nothing they probably couldn't have figured out. So that's what I sort of wonder why. You, you, you mentioned there have been periods of growth, but, but we haven't seen these sustained periods of growth. And is that because they were not backed up by innovation or, or what? Yeah, I, I know you've had uh, Joel Moycare on the, this podcast a few times and his way of thinking about this, which I, we, we, Mark and I agree with, is that really when you're looking at what made the modern economy, what made the industrial revolution a revolution, what made it different is that it wasn't just about innovation occurring, but it was a sustained rate of innovation, not just, so, you know, we, we should distinguish that from a sustained rate of economic growth, but the two are intimately linked. So you can have plenty of uh, technical or technological, even scientific advancement in the, the pre-industrial period, and there clearly was, the question is whether that uh, technological change was quick enough to swamp demographic factors, such as you know the, the famous Malthusian idea, where you know if even if you get these kind of one-offs every once in a while in technological development or organizational development, or maybe even a demographic shock like the plague, yeah, it might it might be good for, and it will be good for. Uh, incomes over a short period of time, but eventually people have more kids and they eat up those extra rents. So if, unless that rate of technological growth and technological development is sustained, you uh, you don't get the, the type of economic growth like you see in the 19th and 20th century. And then as you know, Mark was just saying, the question then you get is, well, what leads to technological growth being sustained? The, the rate of technological innovation being sustained. And there we, we take the literature as a whole and say, look, you know, there's a lot of different insights into things that mattered and might have mattered specifically to England, maybe didn't. So maybe weren't just kind of British centric, but maybe were European centric. Um, none of them as in our in our take were kind of either silver bullets or you know, they were none of them as ind individual causes, like you know, maybe a culture of of growth as Moikir and then McCloskey noted, or coal reserves or some type of limited governance where you, know, you don't have an autocrat that's just you know, trampling on property rights, things like this. You know, th there's plenty of places in the world that experienced this at around the same time Britain did, but Britain was the first place that had all of these things at the same time. And that's where at least, you know, for the initial takeoff, we think is one reason why it didn't happen earlier is that there were historical societies that had some of these features, but none of them really had all or even really close to all of them. And, and probably more importantly, some didn't have some of the features that were really important. Well, you know, like uh, it's really hard to imagine the initial takeoff happening, for instance, in a society with really autocratic governance that tramples over property rights. That's just something where the incentive to innovate in, in, at, a, at a high rate is going to be really, really low because innovators are going to be the first people that, you know, if they're successful, that the government's going to come after or, you know, people with more guns than you are going to come after. Uh, so while 
while takeoff can happen in an autocratic society, you know, like, you know, like China over the last 40 years, it, it's pretty hard to imagine that it would have happened initially. And most societies in history were some pretty autocratic. So that's something at least that we point to. Again, it's, it's not uh, sufficient in and of itself, but I think it, it's at least one reason why you don't see it earlier. When you ask why the economy finally took off, I think some people would point to capitalism and say that growth happened when we finally got real capitalism. But we've had markets and trade long before 1800. So that seems like an insufficient answer. Yeah, that's 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 definitely kind of a takeaway. I think we can we can have to to get back to the Ankara mechanism. I think it's called right? something like that. At least it is an amazing device. And what's even more amazing about it is that if we if we hadn't discovered this archaeological remains. We never would have known any, that anything like that was possible based on, you know, reading Cicero or Tacitus or any of the, none of the ancient authors mention anything like it. So it's quite possible they did have access to kind of relatively sophisticated technologies, which we, we just never bothered writing about. Um, that's the, but the, yeah, so why, why, I've, I, but we, but we had trade and commerce and we had a, but sophisticated financial institutions as well, at least up until around 200. So that's enough for what we call in a book Smithian growth, but it doesn't seem to be enough to, to push through that frontier that the British Industrial Revolution took us through. Um, so it's a precondition, but it's not, not, not necessarily not sufficient, I think. So you seem to be saying is that there were lots of things about Northwestern Europe and then Great Britain specifically where a lot of things came together by chance did anything happen intentionally did government do anything or or is it sort of we just got to got lucky yeah i mean i i think it's a little bit of both um so so something when you say you know the role of governance here there was this long you know 200 year period prior to industrialization where parliament the it was essentially the rise of parliamentary supremacy that you know some including myself date back to you know the late 15th century even and certainly in certainly the 17th century is is viewed as a as a big uh moment in in that uh, government transition. But this was also something that was not done with the intention of growing the economy. This was something that was done as, you know, as kind of an intra-elite competition between, you know, members of parliament and uh, the crown. This was, yeah, so this was something where they were looking after, you know, primarily their own rights and the rights of their people in their social group, not necessarily thinking about what this would mean for innovation, for, and certainly not thinking what this would mean for innovation. But that was an, an you know, arguably the most important byproduct of that of those changes. Um, and again, you know, these changes weren't unique necessarily to to England, even or to Britain, as it eventually became. You know, the, the Dutch went through a similar transition. Other other things, you know, also weren't you know necessarily unique to England, like you know the scientific revolution that was happening at the time. And you know, this was a pan-European thing that certainly England played a role in, and eventually you know became important. Um, that that you might say in terms of intent was a little more intentional, in that the people that were taking place in the scientific revolution, at least initially, were trying to advance science. Of course, you know they had no idea what the the ultimate uses of that science would be, but I think that's often the case in science then you know there's other things you know so Mike here points to you know this history of you know England having very skilled workers um you know that were had relatively fewer guild restrictions this is something again that was just you know the byproduct of various historical episodes 
that certainly would not have been the intent of having, you know, you know, once in, you know, what he, what he claims is, you know, once you get these skilled workers and once you start getting this type of technology, you now have this group of skilled workers that can really transform that technology into something that's economically useful. Yeah, that's not really intentional though, in, in, in that sense. So I think that, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can consider massive strokes of luck um, that, that, and they're lucky, in, especially in that they kind of all coalesced in one place at one time. Um, that there, you could think of many counterfactual worlds where something very, very different might have happened. You know, like had the winds been a little different when the Spanish Armada came, you know, crawling towards England, the, the political history of England might have been very different. And it's hard to go down that path and what that would have looked like and had the Spanish had you know, significant influence in, in England beginning in the late 16th century. You know, one of the things that happened in Spain was you know, the autocracy kind of pushed Spain from being one of the, the world's and certainly Europe's leading economies towards a relative uh, economic backwater by the end of the 17th century. So again, I think that, th that we, one thing we try to make clear in this book too is that history is by no means deterministic. You know, you can you can talk in terms of probabilities that once a society has a certain set of things, certain types of outcomes are more likely to happen than others. But there are plenty of things that come along the way. And this is why, you know, knowing history and knowing context really helps us understand how we got to where we where we are today. At what point did people begin to think that faster sustained growth was possible. Did Adam Smith think that was possible? That's a great question. So it's a, it's a great question because it's actually debated, I think, by Smith scholars. So there, there are two interpretations I've seen in the literature. One is associated with scholar E.A. Wrigley, who talks about a so-called organic economy. And he writes that basically Smith, Malthus, and Ricardo are all pretty pessimistic. They're like, you know, You'll you'll get a you'll, you'll get innovation will raise workers' living standards, but eventually you'll reach like this stationary state, or you know the iron law of wages in Ricardo and or Malthus population growth will catch up with the innovation. So Wrigley thinks even Smith is is pessimistic, but then other people um, have suggested that Smith you know you, you can read Smith in different ways. There's a, a maybe a more esoteric reading of Smith, and he does at some point suggest that the division of labor. And then the increases in productivity and in genders could maybe um, uh, generate continuous growth. So the fate of China, China for Smith is a stationary state. It's a country which had been rich, but was now kind of, the people were relatively impoverished despite the size of the economy and despite all these good things about it. And so the fate of China wasn't necessarily the fate of England, but it's debated in Smith's scholarship about how pessimistic he was, or if he understood that the industrial revolution was happening. Certainly he doesn't write about factories in Manchester or cotton textiles. So he wasn't fully aware of all the transformative things going on at, at his time. In my view, the first person who I'm aware of, who's really aware of this is Thomas Babington Macaulay. So I think it's this review he has of, of the poet, uh, Robert Southey, I think, where he basically, um, he predicts that a hundred years, he's writing in 1830 and he says a hundred years from now, England will be like, you know, have five times the population and, and it'll be like four times as rich per person on a per capita basis. And basically, um, I think I think people have shown that he's he's pretty correct. Like his his estimate was not quite spot on, but almost spot on. So Macaulay in the 1830s seems to know that something has happened dramatically. 
and he's the earliest I know of, but there, there probably are others as well. Um, in terms of purposefulness, I think the policymakers in Britain from the 17th century onwards, they're mercantilists, and they're, what they want is to have an edge over England or Britain's enemies, particularly France, and what we want is to emulate the Dutch. So they're thinking about what policies can we take to get ahead of our rivals. They're not, they don't foresee the possibility of transforming the economy. And so their policies, some of which are, are pretty bad, some of which are uh, kind of good, uh, are not really directed at industrialization. They're directed at, you know, cornering a little bit more of a woolen market for woolens from the Dutch or seizing some international trade from, from Spain or France rather than anything transformative. The, uh, the question of um, when did people start to realize this? I think the most famous kind of pessimistic but, but correct of at least of most of world history view of the way economies work is Thomas Malthus's view you know, of, of mo or the outcome is most people are around, uh, you know, end up living around subsistence. And he was writing this in England in 1798. Right, right when all of the, the action of industrialization has happened more or less for his entire life. So it took a while to Mark's point. You know, this is not something that, you know, industrialization begins in the 1750s-ish in England. It, it, it isn't really until you have at least two to three generations of people who have lived through this, that optimism really becomes something that even begins to become in vogue among uh, intellectuals. If you look at charts of economic growth in history, it's like there's a flat line extending back forever. And then around 1800, the line goes almost straight up. It looks like things got better really fast, but things really didn't get better for most people right away. Even though output expanded, it kind of took a while for that to be translated into higher living standards. Am I right? Yeah, you're, you are correct. Wait, so we have some, we, we show some data in the book that, you know, it took a while for special wages to rise. So you, you see, you know, you start to see an increase in total GDP, not counting for per capita, but the population, you know, initially, so that you have a massive expansion of the overall output or, you know, the overall income in the economy. But initially, you know, large parts of that were were uh, taken up by population growth because the, the population expanded immensely in England at this time as well. And, and, and there's also the case that, you know, so, some of this did go to, you know, the quote unquote capitalists or, you know, whatever you want, the owners of capital, certainly at least initially received, uh, you know, a disproportionate share of that rise. It, it's not really until the, the 1830s, 1840s, you start to see wages really start to rise first in, in Britain. But, you know, by this point, you're also seeing industrialization spread elsewhere as well. So even places like the U.S., you start to start to see a rise as well, at least in the north, that's associated uh, with with industrial and industrialization manufacturing. Uh, so, yeah, no, that that could that's is likely one reason why the perceptions, at least on the ground for most people, it would not have been obvious that this was a, a good thing. You know, this industrialization, you know, that that even cheaper goods or, you know, different types of work. You know, so, you know this is also, it's a very much a cultural thing as well for more or less all of humanity. Most people work in agriculture that, that takes a while, I think for, you know, in, in terms of culturally, this is something we discuss in the book as well, you know, in different, different contexts for, for that to be something that's, you know, broadly accepted that, that this is a, an appropriate way to structure a society, you know, having most people not produce food, but, 
work in factories or do it at our I think uh, an important insight actually from industrial revolution, which, which we should bear thinking about now is when we sometimes think about economic growth, we think about everyone benefiting at once, but we're aware in our own time that a lot of economic change is disruptive. So globalization puts some people out of work. Some people don't get new jobs. There are always some costs, right? And we're very aware of that now. That was very much the case of industrial revolution. So I think um, some very recent work, too recent to be in our book actually, by McKeer and Ograda and Kelly suggests that some of this stagnation of wages is a composition effect, but really the traditional industries in agriculture were doing really badly. So was, if you were a farmer in Cornwall in England, the southwest of England, you were really suffering in the early 19th century. But if you were a textile worker or working in like iron and steel in Derbyshire or Manchester, your wages were going up. And so some people were doing well, but other people were, were suffering a lot. And, and the so, you know, the net effect was positive, was, was on net, the economy was doing a lot better, but it, it took a long time for those, those things to, to net out and kind of become the, the gains to become visible. And I think that's the case whenever you see dramatic periods of, of economic change. Is this period, is this the same as Engels' pause? Yeah, so that's the term uh, Bob Allen give, gives to this, because when you look at per capita GDP, it does start going up. Um, and that's, you know, per capita GDP, think about as, as the, you know, the, the average average income, but wages are more stagnant. Now, um, this is like a long-standing historic debate amongst economic historians about exactly how to construct the, the real wage indices. And some people had more optimistic ones, some people want more pessimistic ones. And Bob Allen's uh, indices um, is somewhat pessimistic until 1840 around about the time that Marx and Engels are writing, or Marx is doing recognition of the working classes. And then it starts going up quite, quite dramatically. So yeah, Engels' pause refers to this idea that per capita GDP was going up, but real wages were not. Um, as, I, as I just said earlier, though, I think, though, that's a little bit of a composition story. But there were some people's wages going up. It's just other people's wages were, were stagnating or going down. Um, and it, it took a while for the composition of the economy to switch to being more manufacturing, more industrial, and then you see the, the gradual rise of, of, of overall wages. If the famous Luddite backlash had happened earlier in history, do you think the government might have backed the Luddites? In the past, entrepreneurs and disruptive people sometimes were not treated well by the status quo. Jared has a good example from the Ottoman Empire, right? The Ottoman Empire has some examples. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that it it all matters how much political power those people would have had. So, you know, Mark brings up the, the context of the Ottoman Empire that prohibited the printing press for 250 years. You know, good reason is that it threatened the religious establishment who were politically powerful um, and thus had the, the, the sultan's ear. Perhaps, you know, in, so in certain places you can you could imagine guild members being threatened by certain types of, of innovation. And in some places, um, yeah, actually probably more on the continent, but in some cases in England as well, guild members were very powerful. That's the that's really the time when you could imagine that you know the Luddite mentality actually making its way into policy. Um, other otherwise, it's it's probably not going to be the case. So you know, by the time you actually get to industrialization, you know, Parliament's very you know quite powerful, and it's and it's more the or the capital, you know, the, the owners of capital that have that are, are either in parliament or have parliaments here. So it's highly unlikely at that point that, you know, you get support for the Luddites. 
uh, in Parliament. But, but yeah, I think that's the way to think about it. Yeah, for sure. The, the Luddites are crushed unbelievably ruthlessly. So um, left, left, left-leaning historians would say, you know, they have a bad name. They weren't all against technology. They were standing up for rights of workers. And they did break some. Sometimes they did break machines, but they were they were generally hung for for breaking machines. So Parliament was very uh, much on the side of the capitalists. Um, the, the one group who had more political power to hold things up were the land landlords, landowners, and I guess with things like the Corn Laws, which kept the price of of, of grain and bread relatively high, that probably did slow industrialization to some degree. So protectionist policies were, were the closest thing you have to like you know things which were probably putting a break on on growth, but but the Luddites themselves never had a chance of uh, of stopping industrialization. I think. I think a lot of people's view of the Industrial Revolution is one of dark, dirty factories and urban poverty. And we've talked about Engels' pause, but then came that broader prosperity. When did it become obvious that industrialization was creating widespread economic growth and rising living standards? 1860s. So if you think about the literature, um, uh, Engels, Engels is writing in 1840s and he's, you know, he's talking about the terrible poverty of these often Irish immigrants who just moved to Manchester. That's partly why they were so um, poor and emaciated. And, and he, he sees them and he's shocked by their poverty. Um, but I, I think historians would say the 1860s is seen as the era, the era of uh, Belle Epoque and equ- Victorian equipoise. So the 1840s, there's some, there are the Chartists who are like another... Uh, a working class movement demanding greater democracy and greater worker rights. There are things like the Factory Acts, which are investigating kind of abuses in the factory system. Dickens is is writing a lot of his his like you know um, uh, like Oliver Twist and so on. I think in the eighteen fifties. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell is also eighteen fifties. So, but but there seems to be a change in perceptions by the eighteen sixties. Uh, but of course, from a human from our perspective, you know, nineteenth century all seems to be like much of a muchness but obviously if you're living for it you know it's a long time there's a long there's a long time between 1800 and 1860 so it's an entire person's lifetime uh, really so um, so yeah initially the early 19th century was tough uh, partly uh, one thing we should have mentioned perhaps earlier was the napoleonic wars were basically a global conflict totally disrupted trade uh uh britain went off the gold standard so it's a period of genuine uh, dislocation and everyone's worried about the French Revolution happening in, in, in other parts of Europe. So the elites are quite repressive. Uh, there are things like the Peterloo Massacre, where uh, trade unions are banned and so on. So there's quite heavy-handed uh, attitude by the state and, uh, and, and very small and efforts to democratize are, are pretty gradual during this period. So there's a lot of bottom-up agitation for the vote to be extended. And it is, but it's a slow process. The elites kind of liberalize and give way, but only slowly. And so you can think about that period as one of considerable turmoil and the fruits of industrialization are really only clearly visible, I think, to people after, after 1860 would be my, my assessment. What's the idea that you hear the most to explain why starting with the West, the world got richer, that you hear it a lot and it's obviously wrong, but it's the idea that just won't die? Well, I I suspect, Mark, we have a similar uh, idea on this. And to 
I, I, while I don't want to um, deny the role that uh, colonialism has played in shaping the distribution of the current world economy, there's so much to it that is really hard to take on face value in terms of why industrialization or you know, the more modern economy happened uh, in the way it did. You know, so you know the I, the arguments there typically revolve around either, you know, cotton or sugar, you know, coming from the Americas into, into Europe. And, you know, maybe especially that cotton, that slave produced cotton that eventually made its way into the mills um, in uh, Northern England. And all of that's true, of course. Um, but the, when we want to explain industrialization, we want to explain uh, eventually the modern economy it's it's technological change and then it's you know how is this finance and, and most and most of this is you know as we we mentioned in the book uh, that you can kind of and there's been there's a very large literature on this to be clear too you know there's uh, mainly mainly historic so mark and i are both economic historians we're uh, you know economists that are also you know historians of some degree uh but it's mainly historians based in history departments that are in this uh, field called the new history of capitalism that view this is the the growth of capitalism, the growth of the economy is you know being in, involved in colonial exploitation, and it's particularly this connection that's made in this literature, and it's really just hard to square that with the the type of innovation that was happening at the time, not in not just in cotton textiles, but in all other types of industries that have even less to do with the type of uh, goods that are coming in from the Americas, you know, let alone the rest of the world, which doesn't, you know, it typically play a great deal in those stories with the exception of um, uh, India, the, the British British Indian colony, which was also uh, supplying things like um, certain types of textiles. Um, Mark, I, I, I don't, I don't want to speak for you on this, but would you would you agree with that assessment or, or do you have something else in mind? Well, yeah, we basically agree. Uh, the, um, the, I would just add, but I think it's the preoccupation so sometimes we think about this episode, you know, the origins of economic growth, and we're tempted to use kind of the term great divergence, or we're tempted to think about this in terms of the um, in terms of inequalities, like why why did some countries become rich and others poor? So we think about this in distributional terms, and I think that then lends itself to um, to thinking about who took what from whom. So it's so about pillaging and colonization and rapine, and and it's just the wrong way to think about it because the, the, the transformation in the size of the economies we're talking about is just so great, at least over two centuries, but it can't be explained by taking stuff from other, other places. So the British did loot India, like, you know, they're guys like Diamond Pitt and Robert Clive, who made themselves very, very rich by stealing diamonds and exploiting people in India. Um, but that's on a scale of the transformation that we're talking about, that's not very important not massive, not not sizable enough to do any any of the explaining. I mean McCloskey actually in her in her bourgeois one of bourgeois dignity book or bourgeois quality book, one of them makes this point very clearly. Just the arithmetic doesn't hold up. So um, if you want to tell a story where colonization does play a central role in, in the divergence, you have to tell a specific story about particular industries having very dynamic or very particular properties having to do with increasing returns to scale, whereby but like, you know, what this one industry was responsible for transforming the entire economy. So be it sugar, potentially, or, or cotton textiles. And I just don't think those stories are, 
are particularly compelling. Um, you, you know, it is possible to imagine an industrial revolution or origins of, of, of modern economic growth happening in Western Europe, even if Western Europe hadn't been nearly as involved in exploiting and conquering other parts of the world. Yeah, and one thing that I like to add, I forgot to mention before too is that I do think with colonization you can tell a more convincing story that it delayed the catch up of certain parts of the world. So some parts of the world were much more quick to catch up with with Britain and even surpass Britain than other parts. And I think that that there yes in cer certain parts of the world for sure you can make a, a, a really convincing case. And I mean I think the most obvious one being Sub-Saharan Africa and the slave trade you know really stifled any type of development there that you know the the counterfactual is really hard to know it's also you know but th that would also be the typical case where you know even without the slave trade it's really hard to imagine something like an industrial revolution starting there so again that would be something where um the initial takeoff is is as mark was just you know laying out really hard to explain via this but you know again catch up maybe may, maybe not though i i agree i agree uh, sort of finally, what are the big research questions that are sort of still open that there still is really intense uh, debate about? There's a tremendous amount of new data emerging um, in, in recent studies. In our book, really, what we add, I think, a lot to relative to some of the classic books on this topic. So, you know, there are a lot of great books. There's Eric Jones. European Miracle, uh, David Landers has a book. There are a lot of books written about the rise of the West, but what we add really to the literature is, but we, we're summarizing like the latest work by empirically orientated quantitative researchers who've been really constructing much better data than we had before. So uh, for example, the, the so-called Angus Madison estimates, which are often cited, when they were originally produced by Angus Madison, they were often uh, really guesstimates from very few data points, but actually the, the series maintained on the Madison website, but by other scholars, not by Madison, because he passed away over a decade ago. Uh, that, that, that data is increasingly based on quote unquote real data, real numbers pulled out of our archives. So the quality of data is improving, particularly at, at a more localized disaggregate level. So I think we are we do know more and we will continue to know more. So there are a lot of open questions. So uh, just to touch upon a, very few, a few of them very briefly. So this topic Jared mentioned about why growth spreads, like what, en what enables the industrial revolution to spread to some parts of the world, but not others. That's very much an open question. There's a lot of ongoing research on India. So uh, in like, I think the story that, you know, Britain deindustrialized India uh, you know, through its own policies, it's a little bit of a simplification. But I also think the story that British colonial institutions were good for India is wrong as well. They were clearly not very good. And so there's a lot of work um, on the Indian economy disentangling the good things like building railroads from the less good things, the, the kind of bad property rights and so on. And so uh, places like India, Japan, China, uh, are all quite data rich. And we've only in the last five to 10 years been subject to really kind of serious quantitative studies. So I think there's plenty of work there. Even when it comes to the to England and the Industrial Revolution, um, it, it would seem often to people, like even to me, that you know, what more could be said about Britain? It's been studied to death. But actually, people are continuing to produce new insights uh, based on kind of newly collected data. So John McCann, his co-authors, uh, Walker Hanlon, uh, um, lots of people producing new work. So 
I think that um, even if we have a good idea of a big picture, there's there's a huge amount left to left to do. Yeah, and I guess yeah, I, I agree with everything Mark said. I think I could add at least in my opinion, there are a few fertile grounds that are just now starting to be touched. Like for instance, we have a whole chapter on culture in the book and culture was something that I, for good reasons had been pushed aside by economists and economic historians for a long time as an ex explanatory variable, mainly because it was used by you know, people in the early 20th century and before to kind of push Eurocentric theories or uh, racist theories, things like that, that you know, uh, trying to explain why Europe and those were unsatisfying, not just, you know, for you know, moral reasons, but also for, you know, scientific reasons. Um, but more recently in the last, say, 20, 30 years, there's been a resurgence in this type of literature that's taken a way more nuanced view of culture that uses it like cultural anthropologists think of it as, you know, something that kind of, you know, gives you a mental framework on how one views the world. And we're, because it's, kind of become something of the last say couple of decades we're, we're you know it seems like every year we get more and more papers out there that are using uh creative ways of getting data for culture thinking about what that means and you know as you know we have a whole chapter on it we we view it as something that's potentially important for both both you know how the world eventually became rich how england might have become rich but also why certain parts of the world didn't um, but this is the type of thing where I think that we're just kind of skimming the surface on what we can say about that kind of that intersection between culture and economic growth and economic development. And I suspect that that will be something that remains a really fertile area for research in the next couple decades. Um, and, and, you know, if, if we are lucky enough to write a second edition of this book at some point, that chapter might end up looking a lot different just because there's going to be so much more research done between when we finished writing this book and, you know, whenever that, that were to happen. Jared, Mark, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Great. It's been awesome. Thanks for having us.